This is an ABC podcast. Broad charges in and he drives and drives sumptuously for four. A spanking cover drive whistles away to the boundary. I think she believes she can. One summer. She's just giving this everything at the moment, punishing. Every summer. A big, airy cover drive. It's one of those shots that look fabulous when it comes off. It's also one of the shots that I'm afraid look pretty stark when it doesn't. Shane Warne rubs the hand on the grass, takes a very deep breath. The dancers changing. Compton comes in again, bowling to Hassett. But the dance forever the same. What a cluster of fields around the batsman. And here we are, just like you folk, waiting for the run that will give the Australian captain his hundred. This is Everlasting Summer, the story of cricket on the ABC. I'm Amanda Smith, and in this second episode, some of the most imaginative and daring cricket commentary that's ever been done. The synthetic tests of the 1930s. The big games took place over huge distances, took place so far away from the public who wanted to listen to them. The only feasible way to broadcast them was A, on shortwave radio, which was unreliable and tended to wax and wane, or to use a kind of system by which descriptions of play were turned into telegrams and reinterpreted by faraway studio broadcasters. It's interesting that, you know, in 1934, when the synthetic test matches were on in Australia, broadcast from descriptions of games taking place in England, people in Australia know more about the cricket than people in England do um, because I think the BBC only had like two 10-minute broadcast periods every day of a test match, whereas Australian listeners overnight got a continuous account of what was happening in a very vivid and dramatic way, in a way sort of akin to the presentation of a radio play with all the kind of the drama and fluctuation that people had come to expect from radio theatre. So what were these synthetic tests? Well, cricket writer Gideon Haig just gave us a clue there. In the 1930s, when Australia was playing overseas, there had to be a bit of make-believe involved in the commentary. Because while a match was going on, say, at Lords or Headingley in England, the commentators were in a radio studio back in Australia. Everyone who was directly involved in doing these broadcasts is dead now, but their voices live on in the ABC archives. Bernard Kerr is one of them. Well, it was pretty exciting for me, you know, because I was just a newcomer. I was just a lad. And there I was right in the middle of a broadcast that was then creating history, although we didn't realise it. And those synthetic descriptions, I think, were the outstanding broadcasts in my time. My job was to take down the cables that came direct from England. There was a special telegraphic link put in by the London Post Office. Their cooperation was wonderful. And it came straight through to the Sydney Post Office. Then there was a chap there phoning it through to me, and I used to take it down. And we were only one over behind. We got a cable every over. And uh, in that cable, uh, we got the scoring shots only. So I used to have to take them down and then used to help to decode. And it went into the commentators. Uh, Mr Moses was one of them with a very fertile imagination. (laughs) Mr Moses is Charles Moses, who went on to be the ABC's general manager. But in 1934, he was the sporting editor and a cricket commentator. Well, I must say the very first night, it's quite clear that a number of people thought it came directly from England because... I had to settle some bets. I had several letters from people 
who said they'd bet that it came directly from England and somebody had tried to persuade them it didn't. So there's no doubt about it. A lot of people were convinced that it was directly from the ground and not from a studio. It also had one other effect, quite apart from the fact that it drew an audience, and that is 1934 showed the record increase in licenses in the whole of history of broadcasting, twice as much as any preceding year and certainly much bigger than any year since. And radio licence fees in those days were what funded the ABC. So, happy days. Now look, cricket commentary is all about describing what you see. In this case, though, it was describing what they couldn't see. Over all his years of broadcasting, Jim Maxwell has marvelled at the ingenuity of these synthetic tests. They'd adopted a code from which the commentators were able to come up with some invention about what occurred on a particular ball. So the code might come through with the word unchance and this indicated that the ball had been hit on the full past the bowler for four runs and so then he would go into a description that led him through that. Fleetwood Smith comes into bowl and Hammond's down the pitch. He hits it on the full, straight past the bowler, down the ground for four. And up would come the applause from the sound effects created by Dion Wheeler or, or Des Turner, who was sitting across from the commentator with a couple of discs. Imagine the timing that was involved in this to bring up off-disc and dropping the needle in the right spot uh, to get those sound effects. And the commentator who sat there with a pencil and whacked it on a, a little wooden device in front of him to make the sound that was similar to a bat hitting a ball, as he described, you know, Bose comes in and bowls to Bradman, and Bradman <laughs> hits it through the covers for four. And so it did sound very real. Until, that is, the cables stopped coming in. Then you had to improvise. We had a lot of fun behind the scenes, uh, even though it was hard work. We were on the air from 8.25 till half past three in the morning. But we had our fun when the cables broke down. And, uh, of course, we had some stories made up, but nevertheless, they were fairly true, such as a batsman having trouble with his glove and then having trouble with a strap on his pad. And then and how often Larwood's <laughs> boots gave him trouble. Too. Yes, that's quite true. The best way, though, when the cables broke down was to whip in a few maiden overs. In other words, an over where no runs were scored, and in this case, no wickets taken either, but that hadn't actually been played. So did listeners to this synthetic commentary know it was faked up? Jim Maxwell. There was a point during this uh, sort of cricket charade that Charles Moses, who was one of the instigators of it all, had to go and shoot uh, a movie tone thing for the newsreel to explain to everybody, this is what actually happens. We're all sitting in a studio. We're not at the ground. Uh, so although you may think we're giving you a live commentary of the game, we are actually in a studio. We're making it up. On the eve of the 1938 Test Cricket Series, I have been asked to explain to you how the synthetic ball-by-ball -ball descriptions are broadcast by the national stations. Let us follow the course of a typical message as received in the Commission's Sydney studios only a minute after the actual happening on the test ground in England. This cable is taken down in duplicate and immediately amplified by cricket experts who fill in details regarding field placements on model cricket fields for the commentator, whom you can now see broadcasting his description from the amplified cable information. As the shot is made, the effects man, who has in front of him a copy of the cable message, drops the needle on an effects record and listeners hear the applause of the crowd as the shot reaches the boundary. And now, let us listen in. Farms boy to Bradman. 
It's a short ball. Brabant moves back and pulls fiercely past square leg. Hutton running around from deep fine leg has no chance. The ball goes under the ropes for another four. That's four more to Bradman, taking his score to 97, a typical Bradman shot, giving the fieldsman no chance of saving the boundary. May I take this opportunity of wishing you all plenty of excitement and thrills in your listening to the 1938 Test matches. The commentator on that newsreel is a young Alan McGilvray, who'd go on to a 50-year career as a cricket commentator. It was a, a peculiar experience to sit down for the first time and try and do it. And then, of course, you've got the cable with six balls on it, and uh, I'd dash through it. I'd get through those in about two minutes. And it, it took me a long while to realise, and in fact, it took all of us a long while to realise that the over would take about four and a half to five minutes. So when we finished those six balls, we had no further information, no cables. And so we used to look at the door for this young runner they had to come in from the decoding room and give you a bit of paper with the particulars on it. And then suddenly someone woke up and said, look, we're getting through this in two minutes. That means we had a lot of padding to do. See, as you well know, padding is the most difficult part of a cricket broadcast, particularly on radio. So did listeners at the time accept this as a legitimate cricket broadcast? There's probably a substantial element of suspension of disbelief. Fraser Andrews is a historian of 1930s Australia. I think because... They were so dramatic because the use of sound effects, the hitting bits of wood to make different bat-on-ball sounds, the fact that the commentators would add an element of excitement to their voice, that they would know what was coming and so they would kind of ratchet up the excitement. So I think that that sense of drama, and, and you've got to keep in mind as well that in this period of time, this is when radio dramas were becoming a kind of staple fare and I think it fitted into that, that that this was not only a sports commentary, but there was also a kind of element of drama involved in it as well that really seemed to take people in. So rather than being seen as, as faked or mocked up, was it in fact, you know, regarded as sort of like the latest thing? Yes. Somehow being synthetic fits into that idea of the modern and the new. So what did the word synthetic conjure in the, in the 1930s? I guess at one level, synthetic, as we would understand it today, implies something that imitates something but that is artificial, but it also implies something modern. And you, you think about, at the same time in the 1930s, the development of things like the first man-made textiles, rayons and nylons and things like that. The Bakelite that the radios are made of, that is a synthetic material. It's a plastic. So synthetic means newness. It implies modern and new. Modern and new may be, but in 1938, when Alan McGilvray was one of the commentators for the synthetic tests, the cable service was still liable to break down. That happened. And then you, you get Alf Noble in and Vic Richardson. And they, were, they were wonderful because both Vic and Alf Noble had been to England as players. I'd never been there. So they knew the grounds. And they could talk about the gasometer at the Oval or, or the George Parr tree at Nottingham, and, and they would fill in until uh, we got the cables. There were several breakdowns, but in those occasions, Vic and, and M.A. Noble would do most of the talking because they were aware of what was going on there. Even so, there were some mistakes made, like when there were two Australians batting who had similar names. We got a cable, I think it was just after lunch or tea, and we had MC uh, out, 
and I said to Vic, I have the microphone, and I said, who will I give, Stan McCabe or Ernie McCormick? And he looked at me and said, oh, I'll give it to Stan. He said, he's having a go at everything. It must be him. Give him out. He says, I gave him out, had him off the field, people clapping, standing ovation for a brilliant innings, and the next cable we got was McCormick out. What could I do? I just said, look, I'm sorry. But that, that, didn't, that really helped uh, the broadcast because it proved we were not deceiving. We were actually doing it, and people suddenly realised. And then Vic and I would go down when we were not on the air. We'd go for half an hour walk because it was pretty stuff in the studio and Hooker would be on and we'd go for a walk. And, and a lot of stores in there had radios going all night and hundreds of people used to go around these shops and Vic would go down. What a lot of garbage this is, you see. And he'd stir up the public and uh, one woman was going to hit him with an umbrella. I got him out of that. She said, you can't talk. This is actual. This is coming from England. So clearly there were people who still believed that what they were listening to was direct commentary coming from the other side of the world. But whether they did or not, these broadcasts were phenomenally popular. People just wanted more and more of the broadcast. They just loved it. And radio, as it has always done, lent that immediacy of coverage of the game. And uh, it's very hard now for people to comprehend this, given that they can just flick the television on and get pictures from the other side of the world. But um, in those days, you can imagine listening on the crackling radio, being able to get these glimpses, these snatches of commentary and the description of Bradman on the rampage again at the Oval or at Lords. It must have been a, a, a wonderful thing for those people back in Australia. Barnes turns, runs in, body to Bradman. This ball well pitched, Bradman moves forward, drives. Continent cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball and it races away for another four. Mortimer Bradman taking his score to 101, a century and 130 minutes, a glorious innings bias, and Australia is now building herself into a very sound position, assisted by a great knock by Bradman. Historian Fraser Andrews argues that in the 1930s, radio made cricket modern. Radio, the wireless, symbolised modernity. It symbolised newness. And it also symbolises a desire to be connected, a desire to connect with a wider world. Cricket and its radio broadcast fitted in with a growing passion for technology, for technological things. And it turns what, to us, or at the time you could have seen as a very traditional kind of sport, you know, cricket, apart from T20 and things like that, you don't really associate cricket so much with the cutting edge of modern life. And I suppose many people like it because it's not like that. It can be slow, it can be contemplative. But at the time, fitting cricket alongside modern broadcast technology with a sense of speed and excitement really put it at the forefront of what it was to be modern. So what contribution then did cricket, via wireless transmission, make to modernising Australia during the Great Depression? Yeah, which is obviously a time when we tend not to think of modern things because we think of the Depression rightly in some ways as almost a shutting down, a turning in. But this desire to be part of something bigger was really important in Depression-era Australia I think one one thing that we need to keep in mind is that people wanted to see themselves as modern. They self-consciously tried to identify themselves as modern people living in a modern world. And in a way, it was something that they could align themselves with modernity by listening to these 
cricket commentaries. There's also what they call the annihilation of distance, that through broadcasts, you could actually almost literally be there, even if the action was occurring 12,000 miles away in England. And you find advertisements saying this, you know, this idea that you're no longer sitting in your armchair at home, you're in the grandstand at Lords, even though it's occurring so far away. Um, annihilating distance, the, the notion of speed, how fast these things were happening, this instantaneous transfer of information, and also mobility. Again, you might not be moving physically yourself, but the sense that you are mobile in a kind of connected world shrinks the world. Alan McGilvray paid tribute to Charles Moses for being so forward-thinking in making these synthetic test broadcasts happen. It was a, a marvellous piece of work by Moses to arrange all this and coordinate it until the end. You know, We were only about one minute behind the actual ball being hit in England. And I thought it was remarkable the speed that he was able to arrange Moses and, and set it up and make us live uh, as though we were at the ground. It was what you call today motivation, but I don't think we used that word in my years. And Alan McGilvray's broadcast career would continue until 1985. Cricket writer Gideon Haig says that McGilvray set the path. Yeah, McGilvray was the commentator that I grew up listening to. He was the voice of summer. And voice was important, I think. You know, McGilvray is interesting because at school he was a stammerer and he went to an elocution teacher who taught him the importance of proper diction, the use of pauses, the, the use of you know, interesting and imaginative vocabulary, and he applied those lessons on a daily basis to the task of interpreting cricket. So he's someone who really professionalises the broadcast of the game. He's not known for being a cricketer. He was a good cricketer for New South Wales, but he wasn't a distinguished cricketer. Captain New South Wales. He did. And he has, I think he has a very advanced sense of public service in the best senses of the word, of public responsibility, of duty to the game, of duty to the national broadcaster, of duty to the listeners. It's, I was just reading something he wrote about his first overseas tour as a commentator, which was 1948 yeah, yeah. to England. Yeah. And uh, at first, you know, he was, share, he was the visiting Australian yes. commentator with the BBC yeah. coverage. And at first they really didn't like what he did and he thought, oh, was it the sound of his voice or whatever? Yeah. What, what he found out was that what they didn't like was that he gave a ball-by-ball mm, description yeah. of the game, yeah. which wasn't the no. BBC way at no. that time. They, uh, he said, talked about the clouds in the sky, yeah, yeah, the yeah. birds, yeah. and they were quite happy to let a few balls go by mm, yeah. without description. Yes, yes. And they didn't like his style until listeners in yes. England started saying how much they enjoyed it and yes. they started adapting to the McGilvray mm. Australian style. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could say that the representative radio broadcasts of the two countries have been McGilvray in Australia and John Arlott in England. And McGilvray does belong to that principle of, you know, just the facts, just the facts. You know, he was told, I think, early on in his career, leave the jokes to Victor Richardson, you're not funny, by Charles Moses, just give us the score. Uh, McGilvray you know, was a strong adherent of those principles. He believed in the idea that in a six-ball over, you gave the score three times at least. When he put this proposition to John Arlott, Arlott said, 
bugger the score. I'm, I'm not interested in the score. But McGilvray stuck very strongly to those principles, and they are good principles to have, particularly in that period where it was the only place that you could get the score. There was no other way to follow it. What you, what you must remember about radio broadcasts from England or, and even the synthetic broadcasts before then is that they really had the feel to themselves. You know, the deadlines for newspapers, both morning and afternoon, were very uncongenial to carrying the latest score. Now, if you wanted the score, the only place that you could go to was the radio. Therefore, the score had to be carried on a regular basis. It was an absolute priority of every broadcaster. Now, Miller is about to bowl to Yardley. And Yardley, has, he's bowled. All out. England are all out. 496. It's not a health, as healthy a score as I, as I anticipated might after the start this morning, but nevertheless, it's still a very good one, and it's going to be hard for Australia to uh, pull this game out and, and win it from here. But uh, I'm still not prepared to say, although John Arlott doesn't agree with me, he says that England can't lose. I think that uh, we, we, you never know in a game of cricket. Well, England did lose that one to Australia, the fourth test in Leeds in 1948. The Second World War had put a stop to international cricket, so this 1948 Ashes Tour was the first time Australia had played in England for 10 years. And by then, the technology had advanced enough so that it was possible for the ABC to leave behind the synthetic method and now take a direct broadcast on shortwave radio. This again was a massive technological innovation. Bob Stewart is a sports historian. We did have shortwave in the late 30s and early 40s, but it was so noisy that it was very difficult to comprehend what was going on. But in 1948, there was virtually a guarantee that this was the the time when we could have a test series broadcast via shortwave radio from England. And it was highly successful, although I did find a report which said that the, the, uh, the microphones were so uh, sensitive that, in fact, you heard every bit of noise in the crowd and even a few aeroplanes flying overhead. But apart from that, it was a highly, highly successful event. Uh, and it was reflected in the ratings. Again, it was uh, covered by both commercial radio and the ABC. And I think for one particular day in the third test, there were more than 40% of all households in Australia tuned in to the test. And that's a phenomenal figure. So if you like, nearly half the population of the country was sitting around the radio listening to an international cricket match from England. So that in itself was important and just, if you like, revolutionised the way we could report on and commentate on international cricket. And everyone could hear Don Bradman go out for a duck in his final innings. That's right. (laughs) That was the only downside. And even that, of course, created a a lot of discussion. And Holly pitches the ball up slowly and he's bowled. Bold Hollies, not. Bold Hollies, not. And what do you say under those circumstances? 
If Donald Bradman had scored just four runs in that last innings at the Oval in 1948, his test batting average would have been 100. Going out for a duck, it was set at 99.94, which is the exact set of digits used many years later for the ABC's GPO box number. Whether that was a deliberate choice or coincidental is lost in the mists of time now. Everlasting Summer is a production of ABC Sport and ABC RN. I'm Amanda Smith, and next time, when cricket was on ABC TV, do you remember that? And then it wasn't, with Kerry Packer's Cricket Revolution. But how much did the ABC pioneer the way to put cricket on TV? That's episode three of Everlasting Summer. And you can find more episodes of the series on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.